Shalom. Welcome again to Seekers of Meaning, the podcast and TV arm of Jewish Sacred Aging. I'm your host, Rabbi Richard Address, and we are very grateful for you joining us today. As you know, these podcasts are designed to talk a little bit about the um, spiritual growth that we are all achieving, hopefully, as we get a little older, some of the implications of the longevity revolution on ourselves and our family and our community. And because we are in the middle of uh, this very, very special season within the Jewish community, the uh, we've concluded Elul, we have concluded the beginning of the high holiday period of Rosh Hashanah, and we are standing on the precipice of Yom Kippur and Sukkot and Simchat Torah. And um, to help guide us through some of these images and some very, very powerful images, we want to, we're very honored to welcome to Secrets of Meaning today, Connie Zweig, the author of... Um, Meeting the Shadow on the Spiritual Path. Meeting the Shadow on the Spiritual Path. Connie, uh, thank you for joining us. How are you today? And welcome to the show. Rabbi Richard, so glad to be back with you. Really eager for this conversation. Well, I'm very eager for it too, because uh, the book is a fascinating book. It covers a lot. Um, it's available. Let's get this out of the way real fast. It's available at the usual, uh, the usual uh, suspects, including Amazon and Good bookstores, et cetera, et cetera. Is that, is that correct? Yes, it's online, also barnesandnoble.com and local bookstores and as well. So, um, the, the, the title itself is fascinating, Meeting the Shadow on the Spiritual Path. And you, you write a lot about, in fact, I, it's, it's kind of like a theme in, in, in much of the book. This concept of what you write about in the beginning called holy longing, holy longing. So uh, that's a fascinating concept. Um, what does it mean? Well, do you ever feel a kind of restlessness? Every day. Yearning, <laughs> Every day. And a yearning for something more. You know, the saints and poets have called it the soul's longing for the beloved. There's this inherent desire or longing for something beyond ego, beyond the material world. And many of us as seekers of meaning intuit that there's something beyond all that. And you just mentioned spiritual growth. So if we're involved in spiritual practice and community, we know that we're longing for something more. In the Jewish community, this could be viewed as longing for the Messiah, longing for the homeland, and in different denominations, there are other objects of longing. But actually, every perennial tradition has that um, image, as you called it, that, that acknowledgement that there is an inherent desire in the human soul to um, uncover, to join with something beyond ourselves. You know, today we call it non-duality or unity consciousness. But even, you know, many, many thousands of years ago, this has been acknowledged as kind of an innate part of human nature. So uh, the, I want to jump to something you mentioned because I, it's on my list towards the end, but you opened the door. So I'm going to try to walk through it here at the beginning. And that's, and, and you're right about it. Um, in in the book around page 227 of my little yellow sticky thingy uh is, is is correct and it's about this this longing the messiah 
Um, are we our own Messiah? Are we lo- what this longing for this Messiah concept, which is probably in, in many, uh, we know in many traditions, but is this sort of some sort of idealized self that we project? So I think for me, the response to that is that this depends on our level of awareness, our stage of spiritual development. So many of us need guides along the path, mentors at different stages. And so we project onto rabbis, gurus, shamans, swamis, roshis. Um, we unconsciously attribute or project a divine human onto them. Someone who is more aware, more awake, more knowledgeable, more compassionate. And in some traditions, we imagine that as someone who is not in physical form, who may have been at one time like Jesus or Siddhartha, the Buddha, but who we imagine will return and in some way um, save humanity. So for me, um, in the, as, as a more training in the mystical traditions, I imagine that as a part of myself my own Messiah nature, my own Buddha nature or Christ nature, my own um, highest self. And I th- and so I think that it depends on your denomination, on your orientation to that teaching, and also on your own stage of awareness. Well, the idealization, the projection of an idealized object um and you talk a little bit about this in the book. But interestingly enough, in the book, uh, and I want to make people aware of that because it, it's very contemporary because you, you, you talk a lot or you talk about, uh, clergy abuse and abuse. And, uh, certainly not a new subject. It's, you know, it's been all over the newspapers, films. Um, many of us have, have had experience with this on an institutional level. When I worked for the reform movement, uh, sadly, I was involved in a couple of these cases. The projection of an idealized self or uh, on, on a clergy person, what does that do to the congregant? What does it do to the clergy person? Okay. Two part question here. Two part, well, yeah. Yeah. Easy question. Yeah. So, you know, if we set it in the context of the high holidays um, and we learn that this is the time of year for self-reflection on our own averas, our own sins, in my language, that's our own shadows. So by shadow, I mean those parts of us that are unacceptable, unwelcome, even forbidden. And we watch at some moments in our lives when the shadow acts out and it says something hurtful to someone and we think, oh, that's not me. I won't do that again. That's a sign when we disown that behavior that that was a shadow acting out. The same thing can happen to a clergy person. So rabbis and roshis and swamis, um, have unconscious material 
that has not been processed. Every human being does. And so even in advanced stages of awareness, there is material that might erupt at particular times. And I explore um, power shadow, money shadow, and sexual shadow, because those are the three main domains in which it acts out. And in chapter five in the book, there are dozens of these stories about clergy people and spiritual teachers who've acted out their shadows. So we meet the, the shadow on the spiritual path, one in ourselves. Let's say we meet our own denial or our own harmful behavior, our own sins in a theological language. And we meet the shadow of the teacher or the guide who may um, misuse his power, let's say, begins to feel entitled, begins to feel immune to consequences, and then begins to sexually seduce his students, or begins to verbally abuse her, her congregants. And so we meet the shadow both in ourselves and in the teacher. And I think part of what's important is that this does not mean we're off the path. From my point of view, meeting the shadow is like an initiation into a part of ourselves and a part of humanity that allows us to move from a kind of childlike naivete in which we're idealizing the other person and giving away essential parts of ourselves as we idealize that person and moving towards spiritual maturity in which we can begin to reclaim those parts, those lost parts of ourselves, whether it's our independent thinking or some of our authentic feelings that might be forbidden in a congregation, whether it's our agency and capacity to speak up, um, whether it's our uh, capacity to doubt and disagree Whatever it is that we've kind of forced into the shadow in our spiritual community, we can begin to allow that to come up as we meet the shadow, understand it more deeply, and learn how to work with it with spiritual shadow work. Is the shadow always a part of ourselves that is negative? Can there be a positive aspect to this shadow? It's such a good question. So the shadow is negative in relation to the ego. They develop in tandem when we're little kids and we're forming a conscious personality to get love and approval. And if anger is bad in our family, then some of our angry feelings go into the shadow, right? But also, if academic achievement is, is good and artistic ability is bad in the family, and let's say it's dismissed or criticized, and we're naturally artistic, then those gifts and talents can also get buried in the unconscious. And sometimes they'll come up at midlife, in a midlife crisis, or in later life, when we're kind of taking an inventory and examining our life stories and what we want to do with ourselves now. So it's only negative in relation to the shadow. Anything in relation to the ego, anything at all can be banished into the shadow. I'm just wondering how you how we would play this image out on Yom Kippur. 
which is, uh, you know, in a traditional sense, there's an interpretation of Yom Kippur's a uh, rehearsal for death, um, which is the ultimate shadow, I would imagine. Uh, how how would you play with this image uh, during during this day of reflection and um, whatever atonement? Yeah, atonement. You know, so in my sort of psychological viewpoint. Um, Asking for forgiveness is really crucial for people who don't want to die with regret. And giving forgiveness also. So giving and receiving forgiveness as we go through the high holidays seems to me really crucial. And we can do that in ways that are communication with people who are here with us and also with people who are no longer here. For example, when my mother died, I had some incomplete feelings about our relationship, and I began to write her a series of letters. And I did that until something lifted in me, and I felt forgiven. So there's a sense, I think, with the High Holidays that there's an opportunity, there's, a, there's an open door in this collective moment to do this inner work and reflect not only on our own sins or shadows acting out, but how others have hurt us as well. Um, when I was a clinician, I heard many people tell me they felt betrayed by God. Mm -hmm. And so that is another issue to work with at this time in the context of forgiveness, atonement. And in some ways, that's what the new book is about. It's really about um, working with our shadows in the religious and spiritual arenas. Because my earlier books were in all these other, it was in relationships, and it was in the context of later life and aging, the shadows that we meet. And this is really in the context of our clergy people, our spiritual teachers, our communities and congregations, how we meet the shadow there, and how we begin to forgive and release the past so that we can be fully present as we, as we do our life completion work. You mentioned something in uh, the book that struck me, uh, the FOBF, the, the fear of being forgotten. And uh, again, dealing with the high holiday period, dealing with Yom Kippur, dealing with Yisker, uh, the Yisker, the memorial service that comes up on Yom Kippur, the memorial service that concludes uh, the Sukkot Simchat Torah festival. Talk to me about this, because I, I, the older I get, I'll be honest with you, the, uh, the more the idea of I don't want to be forgotten. And there was a, um, a scholar whose name I do not remember in a book that's probably somewhere stuck behind me that I can't find right now. Um, it talks about we are, we're remembered as long as there's somebody alive to say Kaddish for us. So talk to me about this. It's a very, I think very, very um, spiritual issue, this fear of being forgotten. Well, 
I think as we age through the lifespan, that begins to come up. So it doesn't come up only at the end of life. It begins to come up, I think, as we age, 50s, 60s, 70s, even if we're healthy and active and engaged. And so there's a lot of work now in the conscious aging community about legacy. Right. And assisting people to create some kind of legacy, either just for their family, like a video telling their life story, or writing a memoir, which many people are doing now, um, posting videos online that will, you know, remain on YouTube in perpetuity, um, telling stories to your grandchildren. So the last, um, epilogue of the inner work of age my last book is a letter to the grandchildren really contemplating what you want to say to them what you want to leave with them um, what you want to model for them for the next generation there are many people doing intergenerational work now on the climate and democracy and so on um, so internally that fear that the the, the the inside, from the inside out, I think that fear of inv being invisible um, it is rooted in an identification with doing and success and leaving a mark. And in some ways, spiritual practices are about releasing that. They're about releasing our identification with the doer um, and moving into a deeper identity. I call it from role to soul. Right. So we learn how to identify, how to let go of identifying with what we do to who we really are. And however you imagine that, whatever language you use for that, whether it's essence or spirit or God or divine or whatever it is, that we move our identity from role to soul. And as that happens, this fear of becoming invisible becomes less. Um, because in most cases, it's about the ego wanting to leave a legacy, wanting to leave an impact and be remembered. Um, so if we've made our contribution and given our gifts and engaged with the next generation, then I think it's about, um, accepting that this is where we are now accepting our mortality i call this practicing mortality awareness i think you know death is only a shadow if we deny it and as we begin to let that really penetrate that we have less time now and allow mortality awareness to really be present with us Life becomes very rich in the present moment. We don't want to lose time. We don't want to miss out. We don't, we want to reprioritize what's really important to us. And as we do that, we're leaving a legacy in the sense of we're modeling that for our kids and grandkids and the other people we interact with. I often have people tell me I'm modeling something for them as I teach as I continue to write and teach about my new books. And I am I have 74 years of, of life experience now and 50 years of meditation practice. And there's a sense of um, gratitude 
now for the life that I've lived and even for, you know, Rabbi Zalman Shachter Shalomi spoke about the severe teachers, those people who abused us or betrayed us, in some ways initiated us into the shadow. And as I look at my life now, I can really see that those moments with the severe teachers opened me, shaped me, um, and opened other doors in a way that wouldn't have happened without those experiences. So, because as you know, we are the collective sum of all of our experiences, positive and negative. Uh, again, we're talking to Connie Zweig on her new book, Meeting the Shadow on the Spiritual Path. Uh, you, you, um, bring to the book, um, Heinz Kohut, I'm probably mispronouncing his words, his name, Kohut, uh, and his, his, uh, understanding of, of who we are. You, you write in, in, in the book, according to Kohut, quote, our individuality is shaped only in relation to others. It is embedded in their responses and cannot be understood apart from this human context. We are relational people, are we not? We derive, that's, is that one of the ways we banish the shadow through community, through relationships? Well, I think, you know, in Western postmodern society, we have this myth of the autonomous individual. Yes, the unitary, right? yes. The Horatio Alger, pull you up by your bootstraps, you right. know, and we hear politicians who are against the social safety net talking about that. Mm -hmm. And so that kind of defies a deep understanding from psychoanalytic psychology about how much we're shaped as babies by our mothers and our interactions with our fathers and later with the rest of the family and later with the community, that we are constantly interconnected and intertwined with each other and informing and shaping each other throughout our lives. So in terms of the shadow, there is an individual personal shadow. There's a family shadow. There's a tribal community shadow. There's a national shadow. There's some global shadows. And we can see a lot of that now in the headlines every day. And so all of that is interconnected and really shaping us at every moment, whether we see it or not. The, you, you also mentioned, uh, and when I was reading this part, immediately Exodus chapter three jumped into my mind with this untranslatable Ehiyah, Asher Ehiyah, when Moses asks, you know, the name of whatever this is from the bush, the burning was sending them to Pharaoh and saying, let my people go and said, give me a name. Just give me a name. You know, I have to have a name. Who's sending me? And of course, the translation, the old translation was I am that I am. But in a lot of the newer translate, they don't translate the Hebrew. Which I always teach is the idea of that this concept of God is constantly evolving. And as we get older, uh, we're searching for that, as you pointed out, this concept of a mature spirituality. And to let go of the childish pediatric images of God and to really have the courage 
to really doubt and to argue and to search and to seek. And indeed, you quote Jung, I think on page 101, by saying individuals need to be, quote, anchored in God, unquote. Could you unpack that a little bit for me? You know, Rabbi Richard, you're asking questions that are that are so beautiful that no one else has asked me. I really oh, enjoy. I'm enjoying how much you prepared for this conversation. Well, thank you. Thank you. So for me, there's a whole field called the psychology of religion that has studied the evolution of the God image mm-hmm. in humanity. And for me, one of the great contributions of Carl Jung, which is not talked about so much, is his writing about the God image. Um, and, you know, the God image is an object of our holy longing. So, it, and I can remember my first experience of that. I was in middle school sleeping over at a friend's house and this kind of yearning for God came up in me. I don't know if it was the night or the morning. I remember being on a bed in her house and having this overwhelming yearning for God. So how I imagined that God at that 10 years old is very different from how I imagined it in midlife or later life based on my life experience and understanding and development. So I think that what Jung meant was that there is in the human psyche a connection to something greater, as I said in the beginning. We can call it God. We can use theological language. That's not so popular these days, you know. We can call it spirit. We can call it non-duality, unity. And I think in terms of the question about, you know, are we relational creatures, spiritual development leads us to a direct experience of our interconnection with all things. And when we're in that level of consciousness, then our God image is different because it's no longer I-thou. We are no longer separate from the divine. And you can read about this in the mystical traditions in every denomination. Um, certainly in, in, you know, the mystical stories of the Hasids. So that experience of um, the evolution of human consciousness in relation to the God image, that theory and that experience is, I think, not so well understood. But it's part of what gets us in trouble on the spiritual path because we're doing this, but we're doing it unconsciously. You know, we may be doing it, as we said earlier, projecting onto a divine human that they're God or um, onto a godlike figure that is now archaic for who we've become. You know, maybe it's a childhood godlike figure. Um, I had a client when I was doing therapy, I had a client who um, was practicing Buddhism. And when he came to me, he told me he was a Buddhist. He was doing Buddhist meditation, but he was really struggling with guilt and shame around his sexuality. 
And as we kind of started to excavate his unconscious issues, we came up, he, he uncovered an issue from his Catholic childhood of a figure of God pointing a finger. You know, it was that sort of archetypal image of a white male with a long white beard, angry and shaking his image at him, shaking his finger at my client, telling him he was bad and he was going to go to hell for his sexual thoughts and feelings. So even though consciously he was a, a Buddhist practitioner in the shadow, outside of his awareness, his early childhood images of God were having a profound influence on him. Yep. And so when we meet the shadow on the spiritual path, part of the work, part of the inner work, is to kind of uncover these images and begin to release the ones that no longer fit who we are. Do we, when we meet the shadow on our spiritual path, Connie, do we, should we welcome it? Should we invite the shadow in and have a conversation and saying, you know, let's talk? Well, I don't really prescribe how people respond. I don't want to make it a should because sometimes meeting the shadow can be really painful. Right. If you're experiencing religious or spiritual abuse by a clergy person or a Tibetan Buddhist teacher or a Swami or a Roshi, then you, it's pretty hard to welcome it. It's pretty hard to let down your defenses and just say to yourself, okay, I'm meeting the shadow and now, you know, it's going to be, I'll get better. So from my point of view, um, the first thing that usually happens is denial. This can't be happening. You know, my rabbi can't really, I'm sure he didn't really say that to her. He couldn't be that mean. Or my whole life would be meaningless because this is what I devoted it to, right? Or my guru couldn't be having sex because he says he's celibate and that's just not possible. So that's the first response. It's not so much that we welcome it usually. Um, and so because this is so epidemic now in our culture, um, because this is happening in all the different denominations, I wanted to offer guidance to people about how to work with this and how to recover from trauma and disillusionment in the spiritual arena, how to um, reclaim those lost parts of yourself and that you were giving away or stuffing into your own shadow, how to allow them to come up. And again, that takes time and it takes support. It takes care, you know, um, you know, for the, for the clergy people, it takes peer support because so many of them are isolated and can't, you know, they're carrying all this projection, right? Right. Of hundreds of people. And so they can't go to someone and say, you know, I'm drinking too much alcohol or, you know, I'm fantasizing about that woman in the congregation. They're isolated and they're idealized. And so it's very, so both sides of this relationship, um, get paralyzed and stuck in their roles 
And so I wanted to offer guidance for what to do about this for people. Um, and one of the things that's coming out of the book is I'm offering free online support groups to do spiritual shadow work together as people read through the book. And if you're listening to us and you're interested in reading this, you can send me an email, ConnieZweig at gmail.com and just put spiritual shadow work in the subject line and be sure to send me your time zone. And I'll connect you to other people who have had these experiences and want to read the book together. And you'll have peer support to do this. Yeah, the peer support is is very I, I, extremely important for clergy. And it's becoming more and more apparent. And, and, and many of the denominations, including my own, are, are actively developing some support networks, uh, much needed. I, I just yeah, remember right. ta talking to students, rabbinic students, and saying what you're going to wind up doing, especially if you go into the pulpit, is that you're going to be you're going to have in, you're going to carry with you hundreds and hundreds of secrets and dreams and stories. And you can't go anywhere with them because it's confidential. But they, over the course of a career, will shape you and mold you. And the challenge, obviously, is you write about it in the book and just spoke about some people have a little bit more trouble dealing with that because of their own family of origin shadows in a variety of different ways. Well, that's why, that's why the, 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 the sections in, in meeting the shadow and the spiritual path are so valuable. Connie, again, the, the email, Connie Zweig, S -W -Z -W -E -I -G, at gmail. Um, com. Again, the, the book is meeting the shadow on the spiritual path. Uh, last question, softball, easy, no problem. <laughs> A holy longing. Is it really for love? Um, you know, I think love is built into our holy longing. It's certainly one of the flavors, ingredients in it. Um, is love the end goal? I think there are people with different natures and there are people who are essentially devotional and for them it's about love so that is not my nature it's not my path i'm more about knowledge and i think there are different kinds of people with different kinds of god images and um and goals for their yearning so again it's hard to make these kind of generalizations um but, you know, what I was trying to do with this book is point out that this is natural and it's inherent in us. And so this is not a book about cults, which tell you that all religious groups are bad. And what you have to do is get out, get deprogrammed and go back to conventional society. So what I'm saying instead is there's a real valid desire here, a valid yearning that can guide you. If you project it onto the wrong thing, if you project it onto a person who has authoritarian tendencies or narcissistic personality, then you're going to meet the shadow.
right? But it doesn't mean that your yearning was bad. And if you get disillusioned, it doesn't mean the end of seeking or the end of longing. So what I'm suggesting is that we need to hold both the light side and the dark side of our spirituality. In fact, the subtitle is The Dance of Darkness and Light in Our Search for Awakening. And I think if we do that, then we land in, in much more wholeness. We land in a place that, that includes our moral development as well as our spiritual development. Connie Zweig, the author of Meeting the Shadow on the Spiritual Path. Thank you very, very much. I very much appreciate your time and, and your um, sharing with us um, a little bit of an insight into all of our shadows. And, Thank you, uh, Rabbi Richard. Uh, my pleasure. And uh, just stay healthy and stay well and stay safe. And a good year to all of you and your family and, and your loved ones. And to all of you, um, I want to thank you again for joining us on today's edition of Secrets of Meaning, the podcast and TV arm of Jewish Sacred Aging. If you'd like to make a comment, email me, please, at rabbiaddress at jewishsacredaging.com. If you'd like to support our work, please go to the website, jewishsacredaging.com. Click on the donate button and just follow the prompts. It's, it's, it's really, really easy. Uh, Seekers of Meaning is produced at the Broadcast Center of Lubetkin Media Companies in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. And a special shout out, especially on this new year, to our amazing producer, Steve Lubetkin. Thank you again for joining us. I'm your host, Rabbi Richard Address. And until we see each other again on the next Seekers of Meaning, stay safe, stay well, and most of all, be kind to one another. Shana Tovah, Tadah.